Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. This week, I talked to two businesses that operate on wheels, a bookstore and a flower shop. We talked to them about what benefits and difficulties mobile business owners face. I also spoke with someone from the city of Reno about how regulations and licensing need to keep up with this new burgeoning business model. After that, reporter Jackie Valley joins the show to chat about the rise of veganism and how it's affecting the Nevada restaurant industry. At the end of the episode, I talk with freelance reporter Colleen Connolly, who wrote a story for us on intergenerational housing. Put more simply, that's housing that mixes young and old residents with social benefits to both. With rent and real estate prices rising and a pandemic driving people out of small spaces where there's lots of people that gather, like in a store, you may be seeing more mobile businesses around town. That's a business that's on wheels, that brings services or products to the customer instead of the customer coming to them. I talked to two mobile business owners in Reno recently to hear about the perks and challenges that came with the territory. The first was Golden Owl Bookshop. My name is Alex McClelland. I was a stay-at-home mom before my son came up with this idea. So he was nine at the time, and I had read a story in class about a kid in London who turned a double-decker bus into a bookstore. And so he came in. He was like, do we have anything like that here? I said, no. (laughs) And then he was like, can we start that? I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. I was really kind of nervous when he had the idea because I just thought, Everyone does e-readers now, or everything's so digital that I'm like, no one's gonna want to buy a bunch of books, but we'll give it a shot. And it's been, it's actually been like a huge, like hugely pleasant surprise because people want physical books. They don't want to be reading on a screen all the time. I've only had a couple days where it really wasn't worth my time to be out there. You're gonna have that in retail no matter what branch you're in. I try to make sure that we knock out a good amount of time within the day that we all just read because it's really important and it's a huge priority and I want it to be something that my kids enjoy and they do they all absolutely love sitting down and reading books as an avid reader I also wanted to know what some of the best sellers were for a bookshop on the go best sellers would be business books I sell a lot of business books or like self-improvement books and then just general adult fiction. That was one thing like when we were talking about opening it and I was talking to other mobile bookstores like along the East Coast and stuff. And they're like, you know, you would be really best off if you just stocked fully kids books. And so as a mom, <laughs> like going to like book fairs with my kids, I was like, like I get it, but at the same time, I also want to have books for adults too. I wanted to have books for, for me, for moms, for dads, for you know everything. And honestly, I sell more adult books than I do children's books. Another recent addition to Reno's community is Emmy's Flower Truck. It's a roving flower shop owned by Emily McPherson, a retired flight attendant. I have always liked old cars. It's just something that my husband and I love. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to buy an old car. And because he had, he always buys them, and I thought, I want one. So anyway, I, I decided, and I love Volkswagens, and I found this car, and with the intention of having flowers in it, because I had seen that many places before, and I've, I've always been a gardener, and, and I've always grown flowers, so I thought that'd be perfect. We just had to add the rack that holds the flowers. I asked both Alex and Emily what the biggest advantage of being on wheels was. 
we were contemplating moving. And so not having a brick and mortar made it easier for us. Like we can take this with us. And then the other part of it too was we have family that's like out in Fernley and they order everything on Amazon because they don't have a bookstore there. And so it's like, okay, being mobile, I can go to those different communities because Washoe County is so big. I can go to those different communities and sell books there. They're usually like dumbfounded and amazed and just super excited. And that's what I get a lot. They're like, oh, it's like the Scholastic Book Fair, but on wheels and for adults. Like, this is awesome. I mean, obviously, like I'm not having to pay like a power bill or a water bill or anything like that. Like we just have batteries that charge off the solar panels. So the upstart was pretty expensive. Yeah. We briefly looked into possibly having a brick and mortar as well as the book truck, but real estate right now is insane. It is unique because you have to be invited. Wherever we go, we're invited by the owner of the store that we're at. And so you get to meet many different people where you wouldn't be able to in a brick and mortar. So, you know, because this, we, we can roam anywhere that we're invited and we meet all kinds of new people, get to know the community. I've just never felt the hometown feel like I do now and how hard everybody works and especially the small business people. It's been very simple for us. We just, we know what, what we want to buy. We have a great wholesale flower company and, and we just, we know how many buckets to fill. And I think it was, it, it was hard to figure out pricing was, was kind of difficult because seasonally the prices change. While food trucks and ice cream trucks have been around for ages, sometimes government regulations haven't kept pace with the innovation in the mobile business world. I talked with the city of Reno's business relations program manager, Lance Ferrado, about this. Let's say you wanted to do like a mobile detailing shop or something like that. You, there's certain inspections that would apply to them from environmental control. If you're doing like a, any sort of any sort of off of the norm general business that would require a planning, like mobile food vending requires a fire inspection, right? Whereas like a flower truck wouldn't require a fire inspection. A lot of the laws that they have in place pertain to food trucks specifically, not mobile businesses. So it's been kind of tricky trying to like figure out what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do because I'm not a food truck. But I do have a business run out of my truck. So they had never heard of a flower truck. It wasn't a normal thing that they licensed for. So we had to explain a lot and first there was you had to make sure that you had all the appropriate you know everything in the truck that had to be there and then it took a little while to get it approved also probably because it was the pandemic so we it was hard though because they had not they didn't know where, where to put us because they weren't sure if we were a street vendor basically you cannot park on city streets you have to park on private property you can't even park on public property and like in a park at this point we're working with Parks and Rec and, and you know, other divisions in the city to try and make that a more of a, a realistic thing because we want people to have food trucks like at birthday parties and things like that in a park. But as a code stands right now, it's not allowed. So basically, you have to have permission from a, a property owner to park your truck somewhere uh, because they're not allowed on city streets. You can't just park, pull up and park on a meter or park on the curb. So yeah, that, those are th those, there's definitely restrictions. And we try to treat the, the mobile businesses all the same, even though like a flower truck, say, may not fall under the mobile food uh, trucks in the same code. Our code needs some adjustment because of the evolution of this business. There's there's these new questions that pop up say, well, how should they be treated? And we want consistency. So that's something we're looking at.
and there are other challenges that come from being mobile as well. Other businesses inviting me to, to be in their vicinity, but yet not marking spaces off for me. So then I'm like, cool, where am I supposed to park? I don't know. Or they'll leave me one parking spot and I'm like, oh, but my truck is so big. Like I cannot fit in just one parking spot. Because not a lot of people have had a mobile book truck was figuring out how to keep the books from falling off the shelves when I'm driving. So we bungee cord. But like here, there's a gap. So I have to find other things to shove in that gap because even that small amount of space, the books will shift and then they'll come under the bungees. So yeah, it's like playing Tetris <laughs> sometimes, trying to figure out what fits. The cookbooks are heavy. And so I've had the cookbooks fall and like, because they're so heavy and they just are, they're coming from the very top shelf, Damage. like total covers just ripped off. And I'm like, Awesome, that was a $50 book, yeah. <laughs> you know? So that kind of stinks. Another tricky part is figuring out where people are gonna wanna be buying books. We do the Riverside Farmer's Market. That's probably our, our best days. It took us a while to figure out how to keep it cool in the summer. I ended up getting heat stroke one day. There was no air circulation. We ended up putting solar panels on the top so that way we could run this cooler. But Lance Ferrato said he's looking forward to seeing the model evolve. Personally, not not in my capacity to see. I think it's a I think it's a cool thing, and and I and I do think that it's beneficial in, in many ways. Right, you can take the business out of your storefront, you can move it around, and you can meet the needs of your business by going to special events or spreading the the word of your business around town. Maybe people in South Reno don't know about all the businesses in North Reno, and I, I think it's great. It'll be exciting to see over the next few years on how people adapt to this and you know how how we move forward. You can find Golden Owl Bookshop and Emmy's flower truck roaming around the streets of Reno. If you want to read the full story, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, along with a wonderful video from our video producer, Tim Leonard, who accompanied me to all of these interviews. I am here with reporter Jackie Valley. Hey, Joey. It's nice to be here. It's always lovely to have you on the podcast. And this time we're talking about a story that we ran over the Thanksgiving break about the rise of veganism in the state. And one thing that was really caught my attention right off the bat that I want to talk about is that Nevada is considered one of the most vegan-friendly states. That's that's very shocking. Whenever I think of Nevada, I think of cowboys and meat eaters. And, you know, I don't think of uh, vegans that often. Yeah, I mean, I would say take it with a grain of salt. Um, it was a survey by a, a fitness-oriented website. I think it's a little hard to gauge truly how many vegans are in every state. But I think anecdotally, just seeing the number of restaurants that are either fully vegan or offering vegan options is a pretty good indication that there's a large and growing customer base here. Yeah. I mean, I know I went down to Vegas. This is a personal anecdote, but I went down to Vegas and I went to one of the restaurants that you were talking about before you wrote the story, Takatarian. And I didn't even realize that it was a vegan restaurant. And I was eating my taco and I didn't realize that it wasn't meat. And then I got to one of my tacos and I was like, oh, there's no meat in this one. And the person I was with was like, yeah, there's no meat in any of this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Takatarian's really been one of the leading success stories in that category, I think because it does have such crossover appeal. And as the co-founder, Kristen Crow mentioned, like they're not catering to vegans necessarily. It's a come one, come all strategy. I think it's playing out well for them. Yeah. And that was one thing that I thought was really interesting in the story too, was this kind of, this idea that 
these restaurants aren't necessarily trying to cater to just vegan people. They're just trying to encourage people to maybe eat less meat or choose a day or two where I think they said three days a week that they wanted to see people going meatless. Yeah, I think we've seen that too just over the last few years. I mean, there's the whole meatless Monday trend. Another term that you sometimes hear is uh, flexitarian. So people who are maybe trying to cut back on meat and dairy intake, animal products, but not fully there. And I, I think that's that's the takeaway I got and was maybe a little surprised by after interviewing these restaurant owners is that they're really open to welcoming people in at whatever stage they're in (laughs) with veganism. I think they're aware that not everyone's going to be fully vegan. And at least for the people I talk to, they're okay with that. They think it's it's great that people are at least curious and uh, willing to try different alternatives and go from there. We produced vegan meat and cheeses, but the first thing we wanted to do is to find out if people like it, if the quality is right, if you can produce it in bigger batches and maybe uh, deliver to vegan restaurants here. So we did wholesale business. Sebastian Mueller is the owner of No Butcher in Las Vegas. No Butcher was originally a wholesaler of vegan meats and cheeses. He never planned on opening a restaurant, but in 2018, his business went to a vegan festival and people were lining up to buy the pulled no pork sandwich and asking if his company was going to open a restaurant. So he did. The wholesale business now is is very much a corporate business as well. If you look at the big brand names of vegan meats, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burgers and others, that are multi-million dollar businesses all funded by Silicon Valley. And that's great. And that helps the vegan movement. But I think the path for really small artisan meats is pretty small at this point. And you need to get into a more automated production process. And I, we just didn't see ourselves there. So we decided let's not follow the wholesale business so much, but the consumer is also so much more fun. A couple years ago, there were only about eight vegan restaurants you could find in Las Vegas, which is a food mecca, some may say. And and, and now there's over 30. Uh, So, I mean, there's been a huge explosion of, of vegan options in Southern Nevada. Right. And I think it's even more impressive when you take into account the fact that the pandemic was during that period, too, when restaurants were super hard hit. And yet we've seen several open in that time period as well. During the pandemic, No Butcher found a way to reach its customers through their drive-through window, which helped with social distancing and crowds. Sebastian said they do about 80% of their business through their drive-through. Interestingly, I reached out to both the Nevada Restaurant Association and the Vegas Chamber, and neither of them really specifically track how many fully vegan restaurants exist. Maybe they will in the future. They both said anecdotally it seems like it's on the rise, but they didn't have concrete numbers. So there's definitely a recognition in the community, but it's nothing that's fully tracked at the moment. Was there any anything that anyone said while you're reporting on this on why it's been growing? Is it just because it's becoming more popular throughout the United States and people are really considering what they're eating more or is there any other factors? 
Yeah, I think you hit on the two points. I mean, it's you can see even walking through grocery stores now, there's a lot more vegan options. It may not be labeled specifically vegan, but it's dairy-free or meat alternative type of products. Even at other restaurants, and this was a point emphasized, you can go to chain restaurants or non-vegan restaurants, and a lot of them have vegan options on the menu. It's becoming a lot easier to find the, that option, and it's, it's labeled pretty clearly. You don't really have to ask anymore what's vegan, what's not. I mean, people are very sick, a lot of people are overweight, don't pay enough attention to nutrition, and now there's more and more information out there, and there's more and more doctors as well that recommend a primarily plant-based diet, and that drives people. And then on the other hand, there's also a lot out in the open now and about animals and how they're raised and slaughtered for our consumption and what like a crazy industry that is. And so more and more information comes out and a lot of people just don't want to be part of this anymore, especially since now there's alternative options. Personally, I'll say I have a friend who's vegan. And so I have gotten a more up close look at it with her because it's not something I really paid attention to beforehand. But there's certainly a lot more options <laughs> restaurant wise now than when we first met several years ago. Some of the, let's call them replacement products, plant based replacement products. Uh, are expensive and they where they have been expensive in the past. Now, if you look at it, the prices are coming down dramatically. We had some customers here, some wholesale customers that told us they'd rather promote their vegan menu right now because the meat prices are so high that they're at a point where the vegan meat is actually cheaper than the real meat. So, and one, one of the things that you mentioned in your story was this study talking about those, those options. Yeah, Bloomberg Intelligence released a report back in August talking about retail sales of plant-based meat and dairy alternatives. So they're projecting by 2030, the sales may reach 162 billion. That's up from 29.4 billion in 2020. So that's a pretty big jump. And if that projection pans out, it would be about 7.7% of the whole global protein market. So inch by inch, it's certainly growing and expected to continue adding customers a long way. The biggest thing for some of these vegan restaurants are the challenges that all other restaurants are facing as well. Right now, where most of the restaurants are struggling with labor shortage, so we're not 100% staffed right now. We're doing everything from scratch, so it's a lot of ingredients that we need, and we're constantly worried we're running out of something, and it might jeopardize our business as well. And it's it's the ingredients on the one hand, and it's packaging on the on the other hand too. So it's uh, It's a tough time. The No Butcher founders pointed out to me as well, they have this long communal table in their restaurant and they said, they they were pretty frank. They said, you know, initially it's a lot of young white girls who were drawn to veganism. We had a lot of tourists coming in on holidays and the weekends. And right now it's the Californians all come to Las Vegas. As time's gone, they've seen people of all ages, all ethnicities coming and their customer base just expanding beyond what we may think of as that stereotype of a a vegan person. Cool. Well, are you going to start? Are you going to start doing Meatless Mondays now, Jackie? Yeah, I kind of do when I get together with my friends. Definitely have adapted it to probably at least one or two meals per week. I have to uh, make maybe make more of an effort to do that. I, I, I am a bit of a carnivore, but I did. I did make the conscious effort to make a salad for lunch today instead of picking up a burrito. So... Well, there you go. All right, Jackie. Well, thank you so much for joining me on on the podcast today. Yeah, no problem. 
The story was written by Jackie Valley and Janelle Calderon, and produced by Jackie and myself, and edited by me. If you want to read Jackie and Janelle's full story, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Next up, we hear from Minnesota-based freelance reporter Colleen Connolly, who wrote a piece for us about a Reno housing complex in the works that will pair seniors with younger people who have aged out of the foster care system. Connolly's story was co-published in The Indie and The Imprint, a news outlet that focuses on child welfare and juvenile justice issues. She sat down with me to discuss what's behind the unusual roommate situation known as intergenerational housing. I'm here with Colleen Connolly. Just to start off, can you explain to me what intergenerational housing is? Sure. So intergenerational housing can mean different things depending on, on the model and where it's at. But usually it involves seniors, uh, often low, low-income low seniors, living with younger families. So often foster families or, or sort of like less traditional, putting in that in quotes, families. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to build a community where they can support each other. And, and also it's it's cheaper housing for for everybody. So that's that's sort of the general idea. Yeah. When, when we're seeing these intergenerational housing um, situations, are, how many people are we kind of seeing in a, in a unit generally? That's a good question. I think that also depends on like the capacity of the organization that's doing it. So the one in Reno is pretty small that they're starting. It'll only be 10 people. So five seniors, five young people, but they can be much larger. It, it really just depends again on, on the capacity and maybe the funding that the organization has. And when you're talking about young people and older people, are we talking, you know, like people in their 90s and, and five-year-olds? Or are we talking, uh, you know, like what, what are the kind of the age ranges we're looking at? Yeah, it, it can it can definitely be as drastic of a difference as that. So in housing where it's families, it could be young parents with young children and sen- seniors of any age. So as long as they're older than 65, I would imagine in most places they could be living there, though they're not meant to be like nursing homes. So sure. <laughs> yes, people who are, are, are healthy enough to, to live there, but it can be a range. And, and the one in Reno here will be young people, mostly in their 20s, up to maybe about 30. So not children. Okay. Yeah. And so explain to me a little bit about the one here in Reno. What's the organization that's going through? So the organization is the Nevada Youth Empowerment Project. They go by ENYEP and they work specifically with like what we, we call like transition age youth and specifically women. So women who have transitioned out of foster care, many of whom have had sort of tough backgrounds, have had to go through a lot of challenges and obstacles, not really their fault or anything. And mm-hmm. and they're just kind of trying to start their lives as adults. So this housing project is just one thing that they're doing, but it, it's new for them to pair these young women with seniors. So it'll be sort of helping them, you know, get on their feet, live independently, but also have the benefit of, you know, maybe an older, wiser person living nearby. Many of these people don't have family, grandparents, things like that. So this is sort of an opportunity to get a little bit of that. Did you talk to any of the people that were like living in this housing situation? So the one in Reno hasn't opened yet. So they're building it now. So it should open next year. I, I couldn't talk to anyone who currently lives there, obviously, but I did talk to one young woman who she actually works for the, for Enyep now, but she went through their program and she's in her twenties and she's the sort of ideal candidate, I guess, if she's interested, she could apply. And, and so I spoke to her and she, she was really honest and said, you know, when I was in my earlier twenties, like, I don't think I would have been ready to live in a place like this because she saw it as you need to be responsible and help, help your neighbors. And she was like, I don't think I was there in my life yet, but by now she says it, it seems like it would be a great opportunity. What stood out to me, I guess, was 
that she really emphasized the benefit that she could provide seniors rather than the other way around. I thought that was kind of a nice thing that I didn't really expect her to focus on. So she said, you know, we should be able to help the older generation and there's a lot we can do for them. So that's awesome. That's really sweet. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a nice, a nice answer. Are there other cities um, in the United States or are there other organizations that are doing similar stuff? Like you said, it kind of depends on the situation. So obviously there's other people looking into this. Yeah, so there are. In doing um, research for this story, um, I discovered that this kind of housing has existed since at least like the 80s, 90s. That's when this organization in Illinois started. And they're not in charge of several of these communities, but they kind of help facilitate them across the country and they're still in operation. And it started in the in the 80s, an increase in child protection services coming and like separating families, and if you want to put it that way. And so there's a need for more housing and support for like foster families and things. And so originally when they started, it was like to put like foster families together with seniors and same idea of, of intergenerational housing that I talked about earlier. And it's kind of expanded so that like certain places or certain organizations want to do it in a particular way. So the one in Reno, for example, is focusing on transition age youth, whereas a lot of the other ones before were just kind of anyone in the foster family category. And when you're talking about the older generations, too, are these people that, you know, generally need some help? I mean, that's kind of the, the idea, right, is that, like you said, it's not it's not necessarily a an old folks home, but it's a place, you know, where, you know, those younger people can help help these older people out and the older people can kind of provide some mentorship as well. Yeah, exactly. So it, it can be like anything as simple as like changing a light bulb or something. Someone who's older may not be physically fit as they once were maybe their balance isn't as good and so it would be helpful for them to have someone else stand on the chair you know that sort of thing and also just like a company you know a lot of our society is not always great about taking care of older people and if they don't have a lot of family of their own or maybe they're not close to their family they can lose contact like social connection pretty easily so this is also like a way for them just to remain connected and to be a part of the community when you're reporting on this kind of stuff what are some of the other solutions you're seeing I guess when it comes to like transition age youth, I mean, I haven't seen tons of solutions. I feel like that's part of the problem, but sometimes there are like programs or things that are developed to like give them extra guidance. Some states allow them to stay in foster care until 21 rather than 18, and you can extend maybe even later in some places, but there just isn't a lot. So like organizations like Enyup, I think, fill in some of those gaps. So it's a nonprofit, so it's not policy and it's not necessarily, they provide housing, but you know, it's not necessarily like something huge, but rather like, you know, emotional support resources, just like a, as a parent would do if they had a child that was in their 20s and still needed guidance. So. I, I spoke to Amy Jones, who's the executive director of the Reno Housing Authority, and she wasn't speaking specifically on foster youth or former foster youth, but you know, she spoke a lot about how housing prices have basically doubled in recent years. It's very expensive. They just don't have enough affordable housing generally. So, you know, seniors are obviously a group who's at risk of, of homelessness, but also these young people. And something she said was that they haven't really had the capacity before in terms of like federal grants and, and state grants that they can get to help with housing. They haven't really had any that specifically target like former foster youth. So. She was excited about this thing with Enya, even though it's small, she's like, it's basically like one of the only things that we can do to specifically help them. 
usually the money would go to older people, veterans, people with disabilities, before it goes to young people who are seemingly, you know, healthy and able to, to work. But of course, these young people need extra help too. All right. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Alex McClelland, Emily McPherson, Lance Ferrado, Jackie Valley, and Colleen Connolly for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey Lovato, with additional editing help from Michelle Mendels, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, funny novelty coffee mugs, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solon. And we'll talk to you next week.